most valuable lesson I've ever been taught is just that whole concept of a day at a time. And uh, there's a slogan that I actually have tattooed on my arm. I know I got a hoodie on, but I'm, I'm kind of covered in tattoos. And it says, make it to midnight. And my sponsor would say that to me every time because it takes away the anxiety of, you know, what do I do when I go to that wedding in two years? Or what do I do when I get married? Am I never going to be able to have a glass of wine again? Like all of that stuff. All, and the, the beautiful thing about this way of living my life is that it's more than just recovery too. Like no matter what's going on in your life, all you have to do is make it to midnight. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M., I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hey everybody, this episode today is brought to you by Don C., Mark P., and Kevin S. Don C., Mark P., and Kevin S. all went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the Donate tab, and made a contribution. Thank you so much, Don C., Mark P., and Kevin S., for your generous contribution this episode is for you. So, you heard Mr. Tim S.'s voice on the beginning of this uh, episode today. Uh, we truly do cover a wide variety of topics with Mr. Uh, Tim S. Uh, we're going to start out by talking with Tim about uh, his bottom uh, that prompted his uh, entree into recovery. And uh, I'll give you a hint. It was the look on his mother's Face. We're going to talk about a topic that's kind of near and dear to me, uh, and that is his uh, Scottish background and about how his family was and is from Scotland and about how they made their trek from Scotland to the United States of America and how they ended up uh, in the fantastic city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, we're going to uh, speak to Mr. Tim about his uh, his creative side. Tim is a uh, Oh, very creative man. He does a lot of uh, blogging, uh, journaling. Uh, he creates websites. Uh, we're going to talk about what he has created in the past. Um, we're going to talk about his uh, opioid addiction and the exhaustive, actually, excuse me, the exhausting lifestyle of addiction. Um, we're going to talk about his definition or a definition that he saw of the word obsession. And I've actually been thinking a lot about this definition when he, after he brought it up, when we were recording this uh, podcast, uh, you'll want to listen in on that. And we're going to speak about how his 
concept of God uh, has evolved over time. We're going to have that in just a moment, but before we get into that, I want to give you some uh, listener feedback. Uh, There's several things that I need to get caught up on here. Uh, Tracy writes in, I'll tell you the truth, originally Tracy was writing in to tell me to uh, be quiet and let the... uh, (laughs) guest spoke, excuse me, the guest speak. And, uh, and that's okay, right? I could take it. I'm a big boy. But uh, I asked her if she wanted to add in any other comments that she wrote in. And she said, I loved hearing the story of Wayne H. I appreciate you trying to keep the talk focused. But he seemed like someone with incredible experience, uh, strength and hope. Um, I heard you on the bubble hour. Uh, I am in Southern Southern Alberta. Uh, well, uh, we are glad that you found us from Alberta, Canada, Mr. Tracy. Uh, it helps me to hear, she goes on to say, it helps me to hear the experience people have gone through and how they come out on the other side with an exclamation point. Thank you for so much for writing in, Tracy. Sure do appreciate it. Kevin writes in and Kevin says, my name is Kevin. I'm an alcoholic. I do a lot of driving for work, and I have been listening to your podcast for the past couple of weeks. I just want to say I really enjoy I enjoyed your most recent episode with Wayne. There's Wayne's name again. I'm an atheist, and I have always struggled with the God concept in AA. I always like to hear how other atheists work their program. Thank you for your work on Sober Speak. Sincerely, Kevin. So, Kevin and Tracy both reference Mr. Wayne H. If you want to find that one, it is episode number 44. uh, And the title of that is Hardcore Atheist Marine Finds God of His Understanding. Mark writes in and says, Hi, John. It's my pleasure to support Sober Speak. It has been a valuable resource for me in my recovery. The podcasts have been helpful to me as I work through the steps. Specifically, I have many struggles with step three. I found it helpful to listen to a variety of speakers address that specific topic, which helped me open to a new way and get the breakthroughs I needed to succeed. Now I'm plowing on to steps eight and nine. I have recommended sobriety podcasts in many meetings as a way for other AAs to supplement their programs and gain new perspectives on their challenges. I find it invaluable. Thank you for all you do. Mark. P.S. The gratitude guy was awesome too. And what he's referring to there, uh, Mr. Mark is referring to an episode. It's episode number 34. It's called Greg C., The Gratitude Man. Uh, Go back and listen to that one if you didn't have a chance to. It's absolutely wonderful. And Mark, thank you. I'm glad that we can be a small part of your recovery. Thank you for inviting us into your life. The last one here, and then we'll get on to the episode. Leslie writes in and Leslie says, thank you. Now, this is Leslie writing actually to Gene of the Bubble Hour podcast, where I was a guest, yours truly, was a guest on that particular podcast. And Leslie writes in, she says, 
Thank you for your interview on October 4th, Gene. As I listened, it filled my heart with joy to hear you say you truly enjoy conducting these interviews and reaching out to all of us around the world through the Bubble Hour. When I listen to the Bubble Hour, I feel connected and I believe there is hope for me. I am particularly I am in particular, I am grateful for John for taking the time to explain everything that he did. The way he described the steps was something that I have always wondered about. Fantastic, fantastic job during the interview, John. You are a true shining light for many people. And now for those of us you have not even met. Thank you, Leslie A. Thank you, Leslie A., for allowing my miracle to be a small part of your miracle. I sure do appreciate it. All right, so that's enough of that. Now we're going to get on to Mr. Tim S. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, so we're sitting here with Mr. Tim S., uh, who now lives in Nashville, Tennessee. I just found out. Is that correct, Tim? That is true. Good old Nashville. But you are formerly from... From Philadelphia. Born and raised. You're a yeah. Philly boy. Well, that must be a little bit of a culture shock going from uh, Nashville. <laughs> Philly to Nashville. <laughs> it has been. All right. So uh, I wanted to get Tim on the program. I've actually been looking very, very forward to this. Uh, uh, Tim is the creator of something called SoberNation.com. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And I know you have a lot more creativity in you besides that particular thing. And we'll talk a little bit about that throughout the podcast here. Uh, but uh, first of all, Tim, why don't you go ahead and just uh, uh, introduce yourself, give everybody your sobriety date, and then I'll start with a couple of questions. All right. That sounds great. Well, first off, John, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's always a pleasure to, to get to talk to people about their own journeys and their own experiences and, and share some of my own. So getting right to it, my sobriety date is March 4th, 2010. Um, it's been almost nine years, which shocks me to say, because as you get to the point where... Uh, you know, you're coming up on those double digits. There was a, a time in my first kind of three months where I, re I remember a guy kind of raising his hand and talking about how he feels like it was just yesterday and kind of me thinking to myself, like, whatever, I don't really know if I believe that, you know, but, um, but yeah, just all these years later, I, I've still been sober, haven't really touched a drop of anything. And I'm, I'm super grateful for it. God bless you. So let's go back to the, let's look at and start with the, I guess what you would call the impetus, whatever got you into Alcoholics Anonymous or recovery as a whole and your, uh, I guess what you would call your bottom. What, what, sure. where was that and how'd that happen? Yeah, that is a, that's an experience that I certainly carry with me and, uh, you know, I, I'm reluctant to call it like a good experience, but I would certainly say it's a very valuable experience because um, there were a lot of lessons for me there. So the the quickest way uh, to the beginning of the story is just to jump ahead and say that I was in Stanford, California. My mother uh, had, uh, she was, it's kind of difficult to explain. The easiest way to think of it is basically a brain tumor. Um, the surgeons kind of said to me, 
when they were explaining to us what happens is like as our brains learn things and forget things, uh, the synapses in our brains kind of like new ones are created and then old ones dissolve with like memories and skills that we don't use as much anymore. And that process is called pruning. And for whatever reason, my mother's brain as these synapses and these little capillaries, uh, little blood cells in, in her or blood vessels in her brain would kind of move around just as she would learn and forget new things. The blood would stop dissolving just back into the, into her system. Like everybody else's does. And she kind of ended up with this sort of walnut sized, um, ball of hard blood right on her brainstem. So it's not a brain tumor in the sense that it's like cancerous, but it, in, in a way it sort of acted the same because it was like an outside uh, sort of mass right on my mom's brainstem. And it happened very quickly. And um, so, you know, point is there was only a few surgeons in the world who were even really capable of uh, operating on this because it's, it's real like anomaly. It's definitely documented, like doctors know what it is and it's happened before, but it's, it's not common by any means. And so we flew out to Stanford to this one surgeon that said he could do it. And, uh, and you know, I, I was certainly an alcoholic. I was also like a pretty heavy opiate addict. And from the six hour flight, out to California from Philadelphia, I just became very, very sick on the plane uh, from the withdrawals. And, you know, and I, I, I drank whiskey <laughs> really, really often. So I was getting a little shaky, you know, I was able to kind of get a couple shooters on the plane, which I remember helping me. And uh, by the time I finally, sure, so that, that kind of helped me out a little bit. But the point is, um, you know, it had been about eight or nine hours of traveling and by the time I finally got to the hotel room in Stanford, my stepfather, he was kind of my mom's boyfriend at the time, he's my stepfather now, uh, sort of wheeled my mom into the hotel room because she was on a wheelchair and they were going to go to the surgeon, the surgeon's office and he was going to kind of like explain the procedure, you know, like he was going to hold up like a little model brain and just sort of act out, like explain where they were going to go into her skull and all that. And it was just that one moment where she was looking at me and she basically asked if I would come just to the doctors with her because, you know, she was scared and the surgery was the very next morning and I was just so sick. You know, I said like, look, mom, I, I'm really tired. I kind of want to just hang out here. And, uh, you know, in reality it was just because I, I had to sort of do my thing. And it was just that moment looking back where the look on my mom's face of, you know, her really, really wanted to be there, me to be there for her. And, you know, there was this window that outlooked this field in this random hotel room. And I remember just looking out to that field and just kind of looking around as to what happened and being like, man, this is kind of the moment where I, I knew that I needed to get some help, which was funny because I had a lot of consequences before that. You know, I was certainly not... Um, my addiction and my alcoholism was not like some kind of gentle road. Like it was, <laughs> I, I, I have a personality, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm pretty stoic and like laid back when I'm not drinking, but I don't know. There's another side of me that's really like kind of bull in a, in a China shop. And so I had, I had had a lot of, of consequences before that moment, but really it was just a look on my mom's face where like I knew that chances were my mom was going to die tomorrow. And like, that was my, uh, my moment to just sort of be there with her and like hold her hand when she was scared. And 
I just couldn't do it. Like I, I really couldn't do it. It's not that I didn't want to, and it's not that like I didn't feel bad. Like I couldn't do it. So, uh, that was it. Like my mom survived the surgery and I kind of went on like some little tear through San Francisco for the next day and a half or so. And, uh, when I, when I came home, my, my family's really close. Like it, it's not like I came clean to them and like they came clean. It was weird. It was almost like there was just this understanding that like, okay, we got through it. Like, let's take a step back and like figure out how we can get you well. And so I did. I just, I just went for it and I've been sober ever since. Wow. So just out of curiosity, have you, did you, when you got sober, were you able to talk to your mom about that particular incident? Does she know that that was the bottom? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think we've probably talked about it. It, it, There wouldn't be any reason for us not to, you know, there's not like some kind of secret about it. I'm my mom is really proud of the work that I've done. I'm the oldest, you know, like the dynamic in my family. I'm the first of my generation, like by far, my parents had me when they were like relatively young. So I'm, I'm, there's me and then my little sister. And then there's like a huge gap of age and tons and tons of little cousins. So, so I'm not saying that like I'm any more important by any means, but when you're the oldest son and your your mother had you when she was like very, very young, I, I know that like I hold a real special spot in my mom's heart, you know? So, uh, so we, we basically can talk about anything. And if we were to have that conversation, I know we could be pretty open about it. I just, I don't know if we've ever actually sat down and talked about it. Interesting. So, yeah. so when you, when you think about um, being in recovery and not, hiding, so to speak, in recovery and mm-hmm. getting back out and practicing these principles in all our affairs and 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 what it means getting back out into society. Because uh, I know you've done that, right? Uh, t- talk to me a little bit about that experience and where your feelings are on that. You know, I appreciate you asking that question. And people have, have asked me that before. And the reality is that in my mind, I've never really thought about it all that hard. You know, like I'm not some kind of recovery cheerleader. I don't like sit on the corner and tell people that if they drink, they're doing something wrong with their lives because I don't believe that. Like I think in a lot of cases, alcohol and even some kind of drugs like can play like a real value in people's lives and the experiences. I know some of the experiences I had like were really great. The problem is me, you know? So I think the best way to sort of look at it is you don't have to go out there and make a big deal about it, but you don't have to kind of hide um, in like this reclusion because I've been, uh, I I, I haven't been surprised by this. I, I expected it, but at the same time, I've been relieved to find out that like, everybody has problems, you know, like everybody has problems. And so if people get a little bit thrown off when like you start shoving these like real in-depth stories down their face, but they also, for the most part, I've I've never really felt this kind of giant stigma or this kind of giant weight of an addiction problem that I had because it's clear that like I do my best every day to just try to be a little bit better version of myself today than like the day before. And uh, I think if you just live your life that way, just like always trying to do a little bit better, like owning your mistakes and trying to move forward, there's not really a whole lot to 
it's not really that big of a deal, you know. Like everyone's got got stuff that they maybe regret or or have lived through. It's it's just never been a big deal to me. Yeah, so, and you know, I will notice uh, the 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 moment that I tell somebody that maybe uh, is not in recovery. Um, that I have been uh, sober for you know so a while, and you know the kind of challenges I've had. They'll always say, "Oh, well, you know what? I've got a uh, yeah. gambling thing, or my uncle Joe's got a you know we've had to deal with this in our family." So it's not that you have quote normal people; you have people that just haven't shared with you yet, and yeah, uh, it all, all comes along. So, talk to me a little bit about uh, a drinking uh, being a. Uh, uh, drinking and drugging being, a, a, I guess, a quote, an exhausting lifestyle. Uh, sure. What was your life like when you were, when you were drinking and, and, and how, I mean, obviously it causes you stress, but c- can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, the, I've thought a lot about that over the last eight years or so. And Although we talk about it a lot in like recovery circles, sometimes I think that the context of the word maybe isn't appreciated enough. And the word that I'm talking about is obsession because I read somewhere years and years ago, and I don't even remember where, uh, I don't remember what I read, but I remember the moment because I remember the feeling that I got when I read this quote, but it was that um, an obsession is a thought that is that takes over all other thoughts. So it's like the top dog of your thought hierarchy or whatever. So everything else isn't as important. You know, like talking to my family isn't as important. My health, you know, like even stupid stuff like drinking water. Like you don't even think about it. There'd be like two days. It's like, man, I'm thirsty. <laughs> you know, just like my skin's all jacked up. I'm underweight, I'm malnourished. So it's exhausting in the sense, it's exhausting in two ways. One, it's exhausting physically, you know, just because like you're always working to get to that other place that you're trying to be. No matter where you are, there's somebody else, that, there's somewhere else that you'd rather go, whether it's like physically or um, within like, if, if you're sober at that moment, like you're always just figuring out how to get, how to get the next fix. But even more so than the physical exhaustion, really, really, and I'm sure that most alcoholics will tell you this, is just like the mental aspect of it because you never ever get a chance to just stop thinking about it. You know, like you never ever get a second to just not think about that one thing that is more important than like all other things. So you lose all of the little things, you know, like I'm an avid reader and there would be times, I mean, I, I just couldn't focus enough to read. And I really, really felt that in my life. I'm an avid writer and I would go on these like four day kind of like insanity runs where I would write and write and write. And by the end of it, I would literally have a blank page because I could never just kind of get my mind clear enough to put, get a thought all the way through. So so when I say it's exhausting, yeah, it's physically exhausting because you're not sleeping enough, you're not eating right, like you're bouncing all over the place trying to go from this person to that person, but more than anything, like it takes over your mind. It just it takes over, man, and like it's it's not good. <laughs> it's all encompassing, right? It's sure. uh 
takes uh, is paramount over all of the thoughts. You know, I want to. So you talked about being a reader and a writer, and uh, I, you know, I'm always curious as to what makes people tick, and you know, what what is interesting to them. So mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about a couple things. Number one, what sort of books are you reading lately, and what is sure. of interest to you? And the other thing I want to know is uh, talk about your your creativeness a little bit. I, I know that you blog. I know that you write. Uh, mm-hmm. I know that you, uh, I think you've talked about journaling before. You've created websites. So obviously you have this, crea- we all have this creative thing inside us, but you have, uh, uh, it has manifested with you in, in several different ways. And so talk, talk about your creative self as well. Yeah, I'm, I love to talk about this kind of stuff because I agree. I think everybody has a thing inside of them. It's it's just part of the human condition, you know. Like we just we're kind of born to create in a lot of ways. But um, so I'll take a step back. What am I reading right now? I'm a huge Seth Godin fan. Um, he's a marketing guy. Yeah, but he's he he's absolutely a marketing guy. But he's even more than that. He's super just thought-provoking with the way that he approaches life. I think he's got like 14 or 15 bestsellers at this point. How do you spell um, his last name? Is it G-O-D-O-N? I-N. Seth. Okay. S-E-T-H-G-O-D-I-N. Okay. Um, I've read basically all of his books. I'm kind of like a physics and universe nerd. Um, I won't get like too far into it, but my concept of spirituality and like higher power is like really, really evolved um, just by understanding like the way that the universe actually works and like where we all come from and our, our connectivity between all of that stuff. So uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of telling you that because on my nightstand table right now, there's a book called uh, All Marketers Tell Stories by Seth Godin. There's another book called How to Create a Universe by Ben um, Gonfield, I think. It's my favorite book ever. I've read it probably six or seven times and you would think I know the author by now, but (laughs) I don't. And uh, there's another kind of graphic novel that I read. It's called Saga. I've always been kind of a comic book nerd as well. (laughs) And yeah, I, I think my passion for that stuff comes from a couple places. You know, we didn't have a whole lot as a kid. And so we didn't really have a TV and my parents just kind of got me reading early. It was just a thing that they made me do. Like my parents were really not strict at all and they let me do basically whatever I wanted, but they made me read a half hour a day when I was a kid. And it just, it just kind of was built into like my daily routine in the same way I brush my teeth or tie my shoes or whatever. I just, it's just part of what I do every day. And then, uh, for writing was really from my mother. My mother is like super poetic and she's just was always super eloquent with her words. And uh, so she's the one that got me to just bring a notebook everywhere with me. And uh, truthfully, like my career as an online marketer or an entrepreneur or whatever stems from, from writing because as I was getting sober, I didn't know what to do with all like the thoughts in my head. So I just started a blog and I didn't know anything about it and I just would write and like that's that's all it was and then I would kind of connect the dots between you know web traffic and people reading your content and like subscribing to you and following you and the content that you create and that's that's really how it all started for me 
Really? Okay. So talk about some of the things that you actually have. Uh, I mentioned Sober Nation on the beginning of this, you know, mm-hmm. where did that come from? You know, what was the genesis of it? Uh, where is it today? What other things have you created? Wow. Um, well, the genesis of Sober Nation. So yeah, the website is SoberNation.com. And for me to say that like I created it would be a little bit of an exaggeration because in reality, uh, I, I certainly gave it like the boost that it needed because it was that blog. And I had another kind of friend who helped me start the website that um, isn't really involved anymore, but he was a little bit better with like the technical side of websites. So he helped sort of build like the resources and the directory part of it. But the thing that I did with Sobernation was really just, it started as that same blog that I told you about. That's how it started with just me kind of writing. But what it turned into was just a catalyst for like other people to share their own experiences. So when I say like I grew it, yes, I did because I worked on it every day. But more importantly, it's the whole community of people in recovery that really turned it into what it is because all I did really was just sort of give people a platform to say like here talk about whatever you want, you know, like tell us what you feel, tell us what you believe, tell us how recovery has uh, impacted your life and the people around you. And, you know, through that, and obviously through social media, like that kind of content shares very well because it's like personal and people like to share their stories. Um, and now it's, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. I, I, I don't like to, it's weird when you talk about yourself a little bit, but it's it's a big website, you know? I'm I understand. So for people who have not been there before then, just describe to them what they could find on Sober Nation. Um, well, it's basically two different sections, right? There's a blog, which is just a, a blog role and videos. And there's another section called Sober Stories, which is all user-submitted content. So people go to the website and they tell their own story and they upload a picture and it's kind of like their way. And are you still Uh, blogging yourself on the website? Not so much on Sober Nation itself. I kind of, you know, truth be told, it was rough to talk about sobriety so much in my life, you know? So like I almost had to kind of take a step back from it and just sort of be the engineer a little bit. Right. Um, But I'm still super involved, you know, like I, I run the whole team uh, through Slack. It's like this online kind of chat type deal that we use. So I'm, I'm working on it every day. Uh, but so then there's the front end, which, you know, is the content and the videos and the blog and the Facebook Live interviews that we do. But then there's also kind of like the back end of the site, which is just a national directory and resource center for people that are looking for help. And, uh, and it's great. And it, it all started with there. But, you know, truth be told, I owe so much to Sober Nation because of the community that it built me, but also just because of like, that was my start. Like all the lessons that I've learned and all the ways that I screwed up, I did on Sober Nation. So it really was just like that little guinea pig for me to learn how to like use writing and, and creating content to grow. Um, websites or, or brands, you can say, but even more than that, like, like messages of, of tribes, you know, of, of people that all kind of have like the same, the same thought and are, and are into the same stuff. 
So, so tell me, and, and there's other ways, I believe you have other sorts of websites and such outside of recovery. And I'm interested mm-hmm. in those. I mean, what else interests you and what, what else are you building? Well, so I, I'll geek out on you for a little bit because I, I, I think it's so fun and uh, I really love it. Um, so I have my personal blog, which, you know, really doesn't have any kind of business towards it. It's just, it's just maybe one day it will, you know, from like my email list and, and the people I follow, but there's really no objective towards it other than every morning I wake up and I write a blog post and then I take that blog post and I record it into a podcast and I put it out there and, and that's it. They're like six or seven minute podcast episodes that get published every morning and uh, my blogs get emailed out every morning and it's just sort of like a thing I do. And um, so if somebody wanted to find that, would they find that on Sober Nation? Is that right? Yeah, there's a, a link on the bottom of Sober Nation, which is kind of an about me link. And that'll link out to to my personal website, which is really cool. And what's your um, personal website? It's Tim Stodds, T-I-M-S-T-O-D-Z.com. Okay. Gotcha. I'm going to go look at it. I mean, you're, you're an interesting guy and I'm interested in it. So I'm Thanks. assuming the listeners would want to you know, know how to find it. So that's why I'm being a uh, point blank about it. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that. Like I hope to be writing in general is just, I, I think the reason why writing and running have always been so dear to me is because there are these two exercises where you're never as good as you're going to get, you know, but you always have to do it because there's always this like improving and then taking a step back and improving and kind of second guessing yourself. Like, am I doing it right? And like the only way to really get better is just to keep doing it in spite of all of those feelings, you know? Um, so anyway, that's, that's that. And then we just recently, uh, my kind of team and I, we, we build a lot of sort of big websites and we just recently published one yesterday, which is kind of random and like a, a, a whole nother industry, but it's called Moving Local. We uh, built a directory of every single moving company in the entire country. And so we put it together and, uh, and we'll see. I'm, I'm really excited about that one as well. I think it's actually like a very cool industry and you'd be surprised all the research I was doing about people moving like People move a lot now, a lot more than they ever had. So I, I think that one will be pretty cool. I'm excited to see what happens. Very transient nation we have. I, yeah. I get it. So you you mentioned running there. I'm I'm you know uh, tell me about your running. How often you do it? Um, how it plays into your meditation? What do you listen to while you're running? Kind of geek us out on your running routine there for a moment. Man, I if I couldn't run, like I don't know what I would do. Um, and really, like it's something that I've had to think of a little bit because I'm I'm only 32. I'm not I'm a, I'm still a pretty young man, but I've had problems with my knees my whole life because I I got like really tall really fast when I was a kid, so my knees have always hurt. Um, so I started rowing a lot more, but even still, like I, I get the exhaustion feeling from the rowing, but I don't quite get that calmness that I get from running and. 
I read this book a while ago called The Tao of the Wu. It was actually written by Riza from the Wu-Tang Clan. And he used to talk about these long walks. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's back up there. <laughs> the, sure. the Tao is so... So I had actually somebody on the podcast last week. It's not published yet, but his name is Buddy. And he's been studying Taoism. So is this related to Taoism? Is that correct? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Um, the author is the leader of Wu-Tang Clan, which is... a super successful and super um, uh, influential rap group that came out in like the early 90s. Oh, okay. So, uh, but he's, he's a spiritual guy and he's really thought-provoking. Okay, but, so, uh, but he is, he's a rapper. Yeah. So he's, he's awesome. the Dow of the Wu-Tang Clan. All right. Uh, so you're listening to this. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. It's fine. I, I was reading his book and he was saying how he used to go through these long walks in Staten Island and he realized that meditation is really anything where your mind and your body are connected in the same thing. And uh, I think that's kind of what it is when, because when you're running, you get to a point where it's all you can think about. Like, especially if you're doing like a long run and your muscles are really, really burning and you got to finish, like you don't have space in your head to go anywhere else other than just like next step, next step, next step, next step. And uh, maybe it's like purely physiological with like the runners high and the endorphins and stuff. But I think there's something more to it. You know, there's been runs cause I like to run at night when it's cool and I put music on and uh, it's a little chilly, but like, I'm what kind of music do you listen to when you're running? Oh, I don't know. Uh, anything really. Um, Sometimes I listen to like real low key meditation music. You know, sometimes I listen to metal. Sometimes I even listen to podcasts if I kind of like really need to just think and just not be in my own head a little. And so you're listening to Sober Speaks podcast on a consistent basis, right? Every day, yeah. <laughs> Every time it pops up, I get the notification on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, so, all right. Yeah. So uh, that's very interesting because, you know, I, I am kind of the same way, you know, people in meetings talk about all the time, how they can't, you know, quote, sit still and all that sort of stuff and just meditate. But uh, I, you know, I've done, I, I do some of that, but I also do a lot of what I call active meditation, which means I'm doing yoga, I'm doing walks, I'm doing sure. whatever it is. But the main thing is just to feel connected uh, and I like how you phrase that. Can, can you talk a little bit about that piece, the, the feeling connected and how that uh, helps you to, to uh, helps you in recovery and what that means to you? Well, I, I got to catch myself because I'll go real off on a tangent with this one because through all the years I've spent thinking about it and you know, when I mentioned earlier, like physics and space and the universe always has been really interesting to me and learning about how like recovery really impacts people's lives and what I've come down to, and I'm sure people have thought of this before me. So it's not like I have like this super insightful thing all of my own, but at the end of the day, it's all just about being connected. Like that's, that's the whole thing. It's when you're on your own, when you're isolated in your own head, um, inside like yourself and thinking about yourself too much. That's where, that's where we run into problems. And, uh, it's just the kind of connectivity I think is the thing that we're all ultimately searching for, you know, like every religion, uh, call it love, call it 
I don't know, God, call it whatever you want. You're all, it's all saying the same thing. It's all just about being a part of, and, um, it's kind of a juxtaposition, you know, because like when you're running, you're on your own and there's nobody, sometimes I run with other people, but mostly it's, it's on my own and you're spending a lot of time in your mind. But at the same time, there's like this separation between like my everyday life and all the happenings going on in my brain that I don't have to necessarily think about. And I just, you know, sometimes I just look up at the night sky and I think about what's out beyond there. And I look all around me at the people driving by and kind of doing their things. And it just puts things into perspective for me that like, we're all the same stuff. You know, we all just have this like little individual perspectives and it makes us feel like we're not connected, but we all are like really, really more than I think any of us ever really care to comprehend. That's right. Another thing I wanted to cover with you, because I believe we have something in common and you don't know this, but my mom came off the boat, so to speak, from Scotland. And oh, I cool. You have a Scottish background, am I right? Absolutely. So take me from Scotland to Philly to Florida to Nashville, how you made this uh, kind of a whirlwind tour around the world. Well, Scotland is the most beautiful place. I, I've, I haven't seen the whole world by any means. From what I have seen, I don't think there's any other place quite like Scotland. It like I don't even know how to explain it. It's it's such an incredible country and the city of Edinburgh is basically where most of my family is from and a lot of my family still lives. Um I, I really hope to live there one day. Uh but yeah, so my grandparents um were were both born in Scotland. My uncle was actually born in Scotland. My father is the first, you know, Amer- American citizen. Uh, of my my family and we grew up in in philadelphia that was really just where we landed my apparently my grandparents were going to get out of scotland because my grandfather was protestant and my grandmother was catholic and so there's that whole thing you know so they had to kind of run away and uh they did the spin a globe back when globes were actually like a thing and (laughs) they put their finger on it and they landed on philadelphia and so that's how my family got here and I I got to Florida really because uh, after my mother survived the surgery, it turns out that I had a cousin who already had about two and a half years in recovery and he lived in Florida. So my dad um, kind of just said like, hey, look, your your cousin lives down there. He said you can hang out with him for a little bit. And I just sort of went there and kind of slept on his couch. And then he put me up from my first week in kind of like a little sober living home. And I just never left. I just stayed in Florida for eight years and kind of got sober there and got my life together there. And um, I met my fiance actually through a lot of the work that I had done online. She had kind of been following like some of my blogs and my writing and, and she reached out to me online and she was living in Boston of all places at the time. And I'd never been to Boston. And so her and I sort of dated back and forth for a little and she moved to Florida. And one of the first conversations we ever had with each other was like, you know, like I'm, I've never been to Nashville. It always looked like a really cool place. Like there's something about it. I feel like I just want to go there. And she was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you say that. Like I've always felt the same way. I always wanted to go to Nashville. And so after us kind of taking the plunge and living together, we were just like, screw it. Let's go to Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Now we're here. 
<laughs> and so you just like got a place, uh, moved to Nashville, and uh, I guess you can work from anywhere, right? Yeah, I'm I'm very very fortunate in that regard, um, and that was very intentional for me. I'm like a terrible terrible employee. I always have been my whole life. I've really only ever had one job as a carpenter from. Basically, like a man who even kind of taught me like the ins and outs of running my own business, you know. You were like Jesus. You're a carpenter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I miss it. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a computer nerd, but um, I miss, I miss cutting wood every day. I, I really do. There's something like very great about that craft. But uh, that's interesting. So, the, what is it that you miss about? It? And I'm not quite honestly, I'm not a real hands-on kind of guy. Not real. You know, uh, so t- t- talk to me about that. W- what is it about cutting wood? Uh, th- is there something uh, spiritual about it, so to speak? Maybe. Um, I- I'm sure there is. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that deep. It's more so just like it gives you a different perspective. Like when I look at houses, you don't just see walls and stuff. Like you can kind of look behind the wall and see how the thing is actually framed out. And it's, I I really think that's why websites have made a lot of sense to me because they're basically the same thing. I mean, there's like a foundation to a website. There's a framework to a website. There's, um, you know, like uh, the doors and the trim and, and the floorboards, the stuff that is kind of the extra decoration, the stuff that makes it look like, like on a website, um, that's all a, a different kind of language of code. And there's just, and also it was just the work itself. I mean, getting up early, I had some really great memories with the, the small company that I worked with. Like my boss um, was a really, really tough, like hard-nosed carpenter that taught me a lot about life and about hard work. and there's a, a small team of us and we would just wake up early and work long hours and drink coffee and swing hammers. And, you know, <laughs> it was just like a really good, good experience in my life to have that, to learn how to actually build houses and know that like I can take things apart and put them back up and know what I'm doing. Good for you. I love it. Okay. So I'm going to turn a corner a little bit here, by the way, this is uh, you know, uh, for those who are listening to this, uh, that have listened to uh, uh, many of my other uh, podcasts, uh, we have gone off on a lot of rabbit trails, but I have learned that I just need to do what I need to do and follow my gut. And I love the rabbit trails, right? I'm just mm-hmm. very interested in people. I'm very interested in you. I'm very interested in what makes you tick. So, uh, I, uh, But I, I'm going to swing it back around here a little bit to uh, something that I'm also interested in that I don't have experience with that I, I talked to you on the beginning of this podcast about, and that is opioid addiction. Can you can you tell me uh, where, like how you started that, how fast it came upon you, uh, um, and and just go into some of the detail on that a little bit? Yeah, um, I, I'm more than happy to. I mean, I think it's important for people to know that I had problems way before I had like an opioid problem. Um, But I also do think it's important to understand like how physically addictive opioids are because it's the one drug that can really blur the lines a little bit because it's not always about, you know, sort of 
the whole getting out of yourself and feeling like you were different. Like sometimes kids just, I, I say kids, adults too, but like in my experience, mostly young people, sometimes they just experiment with the wrong thing and it just grabs you so quick. Um, so that's the thing about, you know, like opioids and opiates and especially heroin that uh, can, it, it's, it's just very different. It, the kind of half-life on the time it takes to get hooked is like very short, you know? So I think that's one thing that's like particularly cruel about it, but you know, there's no question. Um, ever since I was pretty young, I mean, I'm maybe not as young as some, maybe younger than others. I've always liked things that got me out of myself, you know, but it was really, uh, I got, jumped in uh in philly i was walking down the street with a couple friends and you know some kids jumped us and kind of robbed us and uh, i had a huge cut over my eyebrow and i I got some ribs broken and just walking out of the er i I really had no idea the kind of impact that that would have on my life and i just got like a little script of painkillers and um you know there was no question it was like whoa like this is what i have been looking for and, uh, you know, there's a reason why it, it takes over so much. Like, say what you want about the pharmaceutical industry and about, like, the drug trade and all that stuff, which plays, like, a really, really important part for sure. But the bigger reason is just because they make you feel great. You know, like, say what you want about it, but, like, it feels great to have that feeling. And it's so unsustainable. And it's it's, like... Just not, there's no way that you can do it for a long period of time because it just takes over you, like, regardless of willpower or like understanding of yourself, there's just no way it'll always be stronger than you. Okay, so with like alcohol, you go through the kind of stages to where, yeah, you know, you go through all that, hey, this is great on the beginning, but in the end, you know, it just uh, it doesn't work anymore, it doesn't do what it was doing in the beginning, and you're Mm -hmm. after that same sort of, you know, first drink. Is it the same sort of effect, if you will, with opioids? Yeah, 100%. Um, 100%. There's I, I guess because opioids, there's like almost different kinds of drugs you can take. And like each one is sort of like one level up of intensity from the next, you know, but like, I can remember the first time I ever took like that next step and it never being as good as the first one, you know, like there was that first like little five milligram of painkiller, you know, and then like, there's the first one where you realize that these painkillers come in like 40 milligram pills. And then there's the next time where you realize that, hey, there's this whole other level called Oxycontin, you know? And then you realize that you can take it in different ways. So like each one of those steps, you can remember being like, yes, like this is a feeling I was looking for. And then for the whole rest of the time, you can just never quite get back to that spot, you know? And by different ways, do you mean like uh, uh, snorting it or taking a pill or uh, shooting it up? What, what do you mean by different ways? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure like how graphic uh, you wanted me to get with that, but, but yeah, I mean, commonly like you, you start taking them and then, you know, maybe you'll snort them and then you'll shoot them. And, you know, once you start shooting it, there's like, you know, <laughs> it's always that from that mm-hmm. point. I never really, truth be told, um, I was very, very lucky in that regard. I, 
certainly had some experiences with heroin, but um, it was the Oxycontin, which really was the one that just kind of got me because Philadelphia within itself, I mean, again, I don't know how much detail you want me to go to, but uh, depending on the, the, the different neighborhoods, you never quite know what you're getting. You know, like sometimes with heroin, you would have like great highs and sometimes you would, it would not be as good. And like that kind of scared me. And with Oxycontin, like it's super, super powerful. Um, so much so that they actually don't even make it anymore. Like the stuff that was around when I was like in my heyday or whatever, that's, you can't get it anymore, which kind of blows my mind. But um, yeah, like there's no question that that was, that was the thing that, that took me out. It, it's tough. Hmm. So, and do you remember, so, and I'm assuming that played into your getting into AA or, you know, NA or, and what, just take me briefly about through maybe, uh, maybe like a first meeting, uh, and maybe, you know, your, your, your experience with the steps. My experience with the steps started in my first day in treatment. Um, I was very fortunate to be able to find this place that would sort of take us considering our financial situation. Um, and it was by no means like a glamorous facility at all, but I'm, I'm very grateful to that place because the counselors and the people that worked there like really meant business. And, um, so I say that because my first experience was sitting down on a couch in this dingy little room and looking up and seeing the steps on the wall and, I have a lot of addiction in my family, you know? So like I had, it wasn't the first time I ever saw the steps or looked up at them, but it was the first time I ever really, really soaked them in and like read them one by one. And the thing I remember most about it was reading the first step and just being like, yeah, totally. Like that's me. And I'm so grateful for that because I've just seen over and over again, so many people struggle with that initial like powerlessness and to me, I never had that. I just always kind of knew that like I, I was powerless over it and there was nothing I could ever do about it. And so I, I've never had that like what if feeling like maybe one day I'll be able to do it. And, uh, and so my first step, I, I really honestly believe that in my heart and in my soul, like it happened to me right there where I looked up at it and there was just that instant like acceptance of just me and there's just no way I'll ever be able to, to use or drink successfully. And um, again, like I said, I'm real grateful for that. But I went through the steps with a sponsor, man. Like that shit's super important. And for me, I never had anything with my resentments. I didn't really understand what the big deal was it or why people were so scared of it. For me, the magic moment was actually in steps six and seven. And it wasn't in the big book. It was in the 12 and 12. Because in the big book, it's only like two paragraphs or so, uh, step six and seven. But if you ever get a chance for anybody, really, like if you can pick up a 12 and 12 and you read step six and seven, it was just the first time where I actually saw an example of like, this is the kind of man that like I want to be. And, uh, and that was really like the spot where after that, the whole sort of relief and, and white light sort of moment um, whatever you want to call it happened for me where I, I really didn't, I, I wasn't afraid anymore after, after reading those pages in that book. It, that was it. That was my moment. 
Well, you know, uh, the time has flown by, Mr. Tim. As yeah, I, we've been I, on here for a while. Yeah, yeah, we really have. And <laughs> a big part of that is is me, and like I said, taking you down. It's mostly me. I ramble. <laughs> I really have to catch myself sometimes because I'll just talk and talk and talk. <laughs> I love it. So, um, all right. So anything that you, um, anything that you want to add before we check out here and, uh, get this, uh, published? Um, yeah, I, I think there would be actually because, I'm certainly not the only person who has experienced this and I won't be the last and I don't have it all figured out. But I think if there's one thing that I did write and that I learned that is the most valuable lesson I've ever been taught is just that whole concept of a day at a time. And uh, there's a slogan that I actually have tattooed on my arm. I know I got a hoodie on, but I'm, I'm kind of covered in tattoos and it says, make it to midnight. And my sponsor would say that to me every time because it takes away the anxiety of, you know, what do I do when I go to that wedding in two years or what do I do when I get married? Am I never going to be able to have a glass of wine again? Like all of that stuff. All, and the, the beautiful thing about this way of living my life is that it's more than just recovery too. Like no matter what's going on in your life, all you have to do is make it to midnight. Because it's all this, what is it like tomorrow's not guaranteed and the past is gone. You know, like my sponsor would say, get to sleep before you pick up a drink. That's all you have to do. And like, if you just do that, when you wake up the next day, you can do that same thing again. And then you only have to think about that little thing. So it just takes all those huge weights of life and the future and like uncertainty and completely dissolves it. At least it did for me, and I know it does for other people. So I live my life by just getting to midnight. And I think in ways it makes me a little bit short-sighted because I'm not like the best planner, you know, but I don't care because it keeps me sober. And like like I said, I'm not like a huge recovery cheerleader, but there's no question. if Without my recovery, like I, I don't have anything. So... It's, it's how I've done it all these years, and I hope it's how I will continue to do it until I die. Excellent. Make it to midnight. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. I appreciate it. I'm just going to read a couple of things here. Uh, and uh, the first one I'm going to read is, uh, well, first, uh, if you want to go to our website, uh, you can go to www.soberspeak.com. Dot com. Uh, there you'll find about 45 or so other uh, episodes you can listen to for free. We welcome all your thoughts and feedback. We would love to hear from you. You can contact us at feedback at soberspeak.com. And um, I'm going to read from page 164 of the big book to close this out. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in this fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Tim S., we sure appreciate you coming on Silver Speak. God bless you, my friend. Thanks, John. Likewise. <laughs>